You're listening to Fueled, a Finstamaker podcast, and I'm your host, Catherine Finstamaker. Before I get started, I'll introduce our guest today. Dr. Ehab Maselli is a professional engineer and professor in the Department of River Coastal Science and Engineering here at Tulane University. Born in Egypt in a small town at the tip of the Nile Delta, he spent the first part of his career studying the Nile Basin. Ehab left Egypt to study civil and environmental engineering at the University of Iowa, there earning his master's and PhD. It was the University of Louisiana at Lafayette that brought Ehab to Louisiana, where he was a professor in the Department of Civil Engineering for 15 years. One of Louisiana's leading experts on coastal systems, Dr. Maselli has nearly 30 years of experience researching coastal wetland hydrology, sediment transport, and computer modeling of coastal wetland systems. EHAB holds particular interest in the integration of physical, ecological, and social processes for inland watersheds, riverine, deltaic, and coastal systems. Serving as Louisiana's technical lead for the 2013 Mississippi River Hydrodynamic and Delta Management Study, EHAB's work in predictive modeling has also contributed heavily to Louisiana's $50 billion 2017 Coastal Master Plan. EHAB has worked as an educator, researcher, and practitioner with extensive experience working with academic institutions, government agencies, and the private sector. EHAB strongly believes that the next generation of scientists and engineers need to be taught to collaborate and seek public input in order to develop solutions for large-scale issues related to local and global coastal land loss. From the green dot in the vast Sahara Desert all the way to Louisiana, we're so lucky to welcome today's guest, Dr. Ehab Maselli. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for this interview. So before we get into the questions, I just want to introduce the topic of our conversation for people who aren't familiar. It was in August of 2018 that Governor Edwards launched the Louisiana Watershed Initiative, a continuation of the planning, coordination, and collaboration across various federal, state, and local agencies in direct response to the historic flooding events in March and August of 2016, events that forced us to rethink how our state approaches floodplain management. Following the launch of LWI in September of 2020, the federal government, through the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, signed a grant agreement establishing a $1.2 billion line of credit in community development block grant mitigation funds for flood risk reduction priorities throughout Louisiana providing an unprecedented opportunity to enhance and expedite these LWI efforts. So, having said all of that, Ehab, you're no stranger to large-scale initiatives, big-picture planning, projects, and research. So, I'd love for you to talk firstly about the significance of the Louisiana Watershed Initiative as a mechanism to move our state forward with regard to watershed management. Have we seen the likes of this kind of effort in our state's history? I don't believe so. I believe this is the first of its kind to be a statewide effort to manage our stormwater to reduce the flood risk. It's a collaborative effort, as you mentioned, between a lot of state agencies, a lot of regional and local entities to help meet those objectives. So it is very much unprecedented to work at a statewide level. I have not, to the best of my knowledge, we have never approached the challenge or that issue at that scale previously. And is that exciting to you? It's very exciting. It's very promising. So look forward to see how that can help 
the citizens and the residents of Louisiana to have an experience, a much better management for stormwater and flooding. Very cool. So before we get too far into the nitty gritty of all that's going on with the Louisiana Watershed Initiative, I'd like to just take a few minutes to learn about how your interest in this field first developed. So can you talk to us a little bit about your background and maybe where this passion of yours began and how it's evolved over the course of your career? Sure. So immediately after my undergraduate, which I did in Egypt, I joined a a research center called the National Water Research Center in Egypt, where I worked on the Nile River. There is a lot of similarities, but there are also distinct differences between the Nile and the Mississippi. One deals with water scarcity versus water abundance. Okay. But that really stimulated my interest in the water resources science and engineering in general. Followed a couple of years working at the center. I came to the United States and I studied water resources at the University of Iowa. Historically, Iowa is one of the biggest program in the country that focuses on water resources, hydraulics, hydrology. They had a lot of the leading experts in that arena. So there is where I really learned the fundamentals of water resources. And as you mentioned, my first job was at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. At the time, it was called USL, mm-hmm. University of South, Southwestern Louisiana. And it has been a wonderful career. This is really where I grew interest in coastal wetlands. When I first came to Louisiana, I focused mostly on the Schneer Plain, which is the southwest okay. part of the state. So that's really how my interest grew in water from the Nile Basin to the University of Iowa to Louisiana. Okay, so I'm thinking geographically about Iowa. Now, it's not popping up in my mind of like significant water bodies in that area. Is it geographically positioned to focus on water resources and water resource management? Or is it just like the knowledge of the staff there that focus on it? Like, why do they have such a robust program there? That's an interesting question. It's actually the reason Iowa became such a stronghold of water resources is it dates back to World War II. It was one of the locations that they did a lot of testing on submarines. So they have a very strong water-related activity under mechanical engineering, because that's where you really study submarines. And civil engineering is... Civil and mechanical there is very blurry lines between these two departments, so it's very okay. broad, and they both focus on on fluid mechanics and water resources in general. So that's how okay. Iowa became one of the kind of so, like a hub. Yes, it was it was a hub. The state of Iowa is bordered by the uh, Mississippi River, so they also have some connections to to flood related issues, to big rivers passing at the edge of their state. Okay, okay, well, good to know. So as I mentioned in your intro. You previously lent your expertise to the development of Louisiana's comprehensive master plan for a sustainable coast, the better known as probably the 2017 Coastal Master Plan, issued by the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority of Louisiana. So did this effort serve as somewhat of a precursor to the Louisiana Watershed Initiative? Have we been able to utilize some of what was compiled in that effort to serve as the basis for what's now the ongoing LWI effort. I also wonder if it would be appropriate as part of this discussion to kind of distinguish between our coastal situation and our watershed, perhaps the interplay of those two systems. So definitely the coastal master plan is almost a template. It's a it's an example of how large scale effort like that can be done very successfully. Okay. Louisiana has been one of the most organized 
in terms of approaching the coastal challenge. Okay. Uh, so and the the attestment, the coastal master plan is an attestment to that, dating all the way back to the first cycle of the master plan, which was 2007, and it evolved over time significantly to 2012, 2017, and the most recent cycle that is in development right now, it's almost near, nearly complete, is the 2023 coastal master plan. Okay. It gives us an example of how collaborative and systemic effort can lead to really good outcome. Louisiana is probably the most, have the most advanced science-based planning effort related to coastal challenges in anywhere in the U.S. Compared to California, compared to Florida and other coastal states, people look at Louisiana, people look to Louisiana to see how they actually conducted that such such a large-scale planning effort. Okay. So it's a template and gives you, here is an example of success. Now, there is definitely connections between the coastal zone and the inland watersheds, especially for watersheds that are in the south part of the state, which we call the transition zone. Okay. Uh, Lafayette is an example of a transition zone. Abbeville is an example of a transition zone. These are communities and geographic locations where you are influenced by coastal processes, but you are also very much influenced by rainfall, which is an inland driver for flooding. So there is a lot of connection in policies, in projects, in in influences to the climate between the two. There are distinct differences still between the two efforts because the coastal-related challenges are probably even more complicated. Right. Because you get into adjust balances between oil and gas and navigation and port systems, commercial and recreation fisheries. The, the significance of the ecosystem itself. So okay. there are some distinct differences between the two. Uh, not in a bad way, but it's just like there is a, a different set of challenges between these two. But okay. the Coastal Master Plan is definitely a template for success. So the Coastal Master Plan, it seems to me like you're talking about the, you know, it began at a certain interval and then was revisited. And so it's sort of become an iterative revisitation of a of a plan is lwi similar or is lwi sort of the baseline for future will it be kind of revisited in that same way as the coastal master plan is do you see it like that so the master plan the way it is set up by legislation it is a cyclic study okay and it needs to be updated it used to be originally the update was once every five years. Okay. And then after the 2017, they adjusted that to make it every six years. So it's mandated to be updated every six years. And so they're executing on parts of it as a plan, right? Yes. They're executing on projects as they go and then reevaluating the science, reevaluating the topography, reevaluating the conditions. And, and then so it's an in evolution. Exactly, exactly, because this gives them opportunity to learn from projects that have been implemented. How do they perform? Are there new ideas coming in based on the changes in the landscape in terms of economic changes, physical changes, science updates, new data that are coming in? So that gives the state the opportunity to update their plan and make some course correction based on changes that occurred. At the same time, they always have a plan in place. As money comes in, they have their priorities and they have a, a an execution of when that money comes in, which projects are primed for implementation or construction. Okay. 
And so do you see LWI as being structured similarly to that? I hope so. Currently, LWI is mainly funded by that one-time okay, federal one time grant. Um, but there is no, it's possible that the governor and the state agencies and the local entities can decide to make a infrastructure around it and something similar to that, that it needs to be updated. Okay. Because the models that will be produced, mm-hmm. the data that will be gathered, it may need to be updated. It actually right. is definitively need to be updated every once in a while. Every once in a while, it yeah. may be revisited. Yeah, okay. based on new knowledge, based on changes to the, as new development comes in, these models need to continue to live as new projects get implemented and subdivisions get built and commercial building. They need to be incorporated, ingested okay. into these models. Okay. So they need to find a long-term sustainable plan to keep these tools alive. And one of the best ways is to incorporate them into the process of maybe approving new right. development. If they became part of the process, then you guarantee their longevity. Interesting. Thanks for the clarification. So as part of the stated mission of LWI, in addition to the reduction of flood risk and improvements of floodplain management, is to, quote, maximize the natural and beneficial function of floodplains. So can you break this down for us a bit and discuss what exactly is the function of a floodplain? So to broaden it a little bit, this is what they refer to as natural and nature-based solutions, which as a concept is basically, it says that use the natural processes to help you accomplish your goals of managing stormwater and reducing flood okay. versus, for example, concrete lining a, a channel or building a concrete structure. That's an engineered, we call it gray solution. Gray infrastructure. Yes. Okay. Versus natural, which is using a meandering river that it has vegetation in it to absorb and retain the water, to slow it down okay. and hold the water. So these are natural functions that you could use to help you accomplish the reducing the flood risk. Some communities are progressive in that regard than others. I have seen, not necessarily only in Louisiana, I've seen even big urban areas where they actually build a massive complex of baseball fields and soccer fields in the floodplain so it it can flood, but it's also during uh, fair weather conditions that the community can use it as an outing, as a natural park or a sports center, but it doesn't fully encroach and take away that space, which is the floodways and the floodplains. Okay, so it's not completely off limits. Yes, but you should not develop it. Right. And then if you continue to do that, if you continue to take away the capacity from the floodplain, if you continue to encroach, then flooding will become even more severe, even from the smallest rainfall event. And you see sometimes now small rainfall events in areas that are paved, it floods because you exceed the capacity. It's kind of a, a balance of working with what's naturally presented being mindful of nature as part of a, a more sustainable floodplain management strategy. Exactly, exactly. So can you give us some examples, and you kind of briefly touched on this, some examples of communities that are working with the natural flow of the watershed and how this contrasts with those who aren't considering the broader context of their localized decision-making policies. And I guess I've heard this talked about in terms of, you know, Water doesn't know political boundaries. 
but you know, elected officials serve geographical bounds and sometimes are making decisions on a local basis. So maybe you have some examples of communities or instances or or times whenever it has been taken into account successfully and then how that differs from when someone's not making that that kind of informed decision making that taking into account the broader context of the floodplain and and the beyond those political bounds. Yes, and and you are touching on probably the heart of the challenge facing LWI and stormwater management broadly is the challenge, how do you actually cope with the jurisdictions and the boundaries of certain entities? Because that's what their primary responsibility right? versus a watershed scale that is not fully aligned with the political or the authorities of different entities. I would use the Acadiana Planning Commission as an example where they try to have, if I remember correctly, about almost 10 parishes together. Right. So that's an attempt that I really admire because now you are putting these parishes, parish officials together, and it's very challenging. Mm -hmm. But they at least try to think through how can we do collaboratively for the betterment of the entire watershed. It does cut across political boundaries. But it's not easy to implement because, as you said, you know, if you are an elected official or if you are a specific city engineer or a parish engineer, that's your responsibility. And it's very difficult to spend your money outside your boundary, even if you determine from technical point of view that the solution to my problem is upriver. Right. But you will not be able to, you will not have the authority to go fix that bottleneck that is outside your jurisdiction. Okay. So, and to convince that taxing body that their good. money should be spent outside Elsewhere, of yeah. their jurisdiction. Yeah, I think okay. if you're spending your money outside your parish boundary or outside, right. it's not easy. So if the LWI ultimately establishes organizations or some authority that at the watershed scale, mm-hmm. that may help us to pass that bottleneck. Okay. So that we can think about solutions at the watershed scale rather than at the municipality scale that is not necessarily aligned at all mm-hmm. with solving water problems. But like I said, it's easier said than done. And that's why it requires a lot of policy adjustments, drainage ordinate adjustments, restructuring of how things are managed. Right. It needs to be brought in so that it can be managed at the watershed by watershed rather than a parish boundary or a jurisdiction boundary very complex. You have a lot of systems in place, political systems in place, and governmental systems in place to navigate, to implement informed and scientifically informed decisions about. Yes. But if there is a will, it can be done. That's true. It's always the will of the people. That's true. That's true. So some guiding principles of the Louisiana Watershed Initiative include leveraging the use of scientific tools and approaches to further transparent and objective decision-making like we are just discussing. Can you talk a bit about your experience as it relates to scientific research and the development of truly useful data, how that's done, and how you see this resulting in, quote, good decision-making? So definitely the focus on the first we are only in the third year of a 12-year program. Rightfully, we're starting with building the science tools and the technical tools. 
So we launched collaboratively between University of Louisiana at Lafayette and Tulane, proposed a, a, a design of a data collection system at the statewide. And the USGS, the federal agency, is actually implementing that on the ground as we speak. A lot of these monitoring stations are already in place gathering data. So, and the value of that data will increase with time because the more it collects data, the more it becomes helpful. Okay. And also, as you, you're aware, the state in, embarked with seven regional team, very large engineering firms, extremely experienced in developing these kind of tools. And for the first time, we will have the entire state have models that can help provide information. Now, models are not the ultimate solution. Models will provide us with technical, scientifically sound information that will inform the decision-making. So it will, after this phase is done, it will come back to, now what can we do with these models? What can we do with this information? Can we really implement policies and ordinates that empower that information to really help people, to select the proper projects? Okay. Uh, because that's what will help us to manage the water, the stormwater. That's what will help us to reduce the risk of flooding on the Louisiana residents. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. I want to kind of derivate just a little bit and talk about, I think it was within the last five years, you gave a TED Talk where you exposed a bit of the disconnect that typically exists between engineers, social scientists, and the public. And so in this talk, you advocated for an integrated approach to best further the preservation of our natural systems where, this is what, a quote from you, where engineers are great problem solvers with the ability to listen to ideas and bring them to life, where social scientists are thoughtful about the human implications of projects, effectively communicating with communities, and where the public is engaged, essential, and central to the process. So do you see LWI as an embodiment of this wish as our best efforts in striving for this reality? I believe LWI has the potential to be the embodiment of this concept. As I said, we are still early in the process. It's still in the third of a 12-year program. Currently, the focus is on producing the tools that will help us to have information. These tools will, next step is to evaluate and screen ideas and projects that hopefully will be funded by and constructed through the program to help reduce the risk. Um, this hope, uh, this dream will materialize if we continue to push for uh, what we call regional capacity building. So we need to build capacity at the local and regional level. In North Louisiana, in Central Louisiana, in South Louisiana, we need to empower and educate and train and provide good infrastructure for all these regional activities, entities, because they will be the one who will, on the day-to-day -day and in the long term, manage these models and this data. And they are the one who approve development. Right. So they need to have that infrastructure around them that will allow them to continue to use good and well-informed systems to make up the decision to approve development or modify these developments so that we can still want to encourage economic development, but also preserve and reduce flood risk, improve the quality of life for people. So it will materialize if we implement those things. And if we continue to keep them front and center, build regional capacity, engage with the community, 
mm-hmm. hear from the people who will be actually directly impacted mm-hmm. by flooding issues. I think sometimes I sense a conflict of, you know, how involved do you try and get the general populace? Because oftentimes they're not as informed on, you know, maybe the benefits of a project and they might be ill-informed and well-intentioned, but they may have formulated an opinion that is against a project that may be highly beneficial for them from a scientific perspective. So I think that there's historically some contention about, you know, how much to get the public engaged. But I think from what I see, and maybe you can say, maybe we're getting better at engaging the public. Maybe these forums are getting better. Maybe educational institutions and government bodies, maybe that process is becoming better to a degree that the collaboration can exist. It is getting better. I believe there is a long way to go. Okay. I believe still the, there is still a not insignificant amount or a number of people who are not engaged. They would like to be engaged, but they don't have access to information. Translating the science yeah. um, is important so that you can engage broader communities. Yeah. There is sometimes also fatigue and maybe distrust True. of the information. True. So you also have to build trust and you have to build. And one of the most effective ways to build trust is transparency. Yeah. You have to be transparent with the public. You have to communicate the possible outcome of certain strategies, but also the possible failure. True. It may not work. Because if you keep people in the dark and blindside them, then you continue to lose that trust. So there is a long way to go. It has gotten better. Right. Uh, if you look at the master plan, if you fall back on the master plan as a template, it has evolved over time from the 27 to 2007 to 12 to 17 to 23, because they realize that it is it continues to be the most challenging aspect is how to communicate the outcome to the public, how to solicit their input, how to get them on board. Yeah. It is unattainable to expect 100% of the entire general public to be on board with every strategy or a project, but that should not stop us from pursuing public engagement and hearing the voices of people and making them believe that they are actually part of the process and not cosmetic. If you do the entire work and you come at the very tail end and accept public comments, then that's a cosmetic engagement. Cosmetic. Yes, in the sense that there is nothing they can do at that point in time. That it's will, already been done. It's already been done. So sometimes you will hear, you go to these public meetings and you will, you will hear a comment and then the presenter of that plan, whatever federal or state or whatever agency, will say noted because there's not much you can do about it. Okay. So the public engagement has to be meaningful. Yeah. And it has to be throughout the process. Not done cosmetically at the very end to check the box that okay there was a public commenting period. That's, I'm inclined to agree. Yeah, that falls far short of what really is meant by engaging the public so that they can accept the plans or the strategies that you plan to implement. They are on board with you with the level of risk. Nothing is guaranteed 100%, but if they are with you the whole time, uh, then they say, okay, this strategy is likely to succeed, but if it fails, we were with you the whole way. Yeah. 
you've brought them along in the, exactly. in the journey from start exactly. to finish. So yes, there has been improvement, but we have a long way to go. Okay. Noted. So a bit further exploration into these sentiments, looking at the Louisiana Watershed Initiative's strategic areas of focus, that data will be developed to standards, that thoughtful community engagement will lead to integrated planning, and the intention to meet communities where they are, bringing everyone on board for the successful implementation of practical solutions in the forms of policies, programs, and projects how can we hold ourselves accountable to this framework that these aspirational focus areas will be lived and reflected in the outcomes of LWI? Maybe it's similar to what we were just discussing. Yeah, and it's continuing with the same with the same concept of I think a lot of people are watching. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are hopeful that they will be engaged. And I believe that for the LWI to be fully successful, we have to really empower the local and the regional. Sometimes central approaches, if everything is done at the central level, it has the appearance of efficiency and most secure way to keep the quality and keep up the standard. But it is also the most disenfranchising to local and regional entities. It is important to have the people who are very aware of the details and the intricacies of every region the history of it, the culture of it, the challenges reflecting the voices of these residents has to be done at the regional level. It has to be in a distributed manner, not centralized. That's my opinion. So I'm hoping that the LWI, after we develop the tools, after we screen projects, we do empower and engage the regional, help them to build capacity. There is room for funding to build these capacities. And there will be some responsibility falling back on the general public. Are we going to accept, for example, a drainage tax? That's always a very sensitive topic and people don't like. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a very anti-tax climate, Correct. I would say. But if you actually survey around communities, there are a lot of other places that do have this kind of taxing. And I'm not an expert in that field, but that one way to help keep up the infrastructure mm-hmm. to reduce the flood risk. Right. One way or the other, you pay for it. True. One way or the other, you pay for it. Because Either in insurance premiums on the back end or, or damages, in, yeah. in any number of different ways. Correct. Yeah, the insurance rates, and again, I'm not fully well-versed in that, insurance rates are through the roof. Right. So one way or the other, we pay for it. Yeah. What's known, yeah. That's a known issue in Louisiana and Correct. how insurance companies are just fleeing and... So I think sometimes the anti-tax sentiment, it should be more widely recognized that, yes, in in one way or another, you're going to pay for it, either on the front end in effective management or mitigation strategies or on the back end as part of disaster recovery. Exactly. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's very complex. And the psychology behind it is probably would be very interesting to explore as well, the psychology of the... Modern taxpayer. (laughs) The Louisiana Watershed Initiative as a whole relies on the effective collaboration of five state agencies. So, and more probably perhaps beyond that, but the Louisiana Department of Transportation and Development, the Louisiana Office of Community Development, Governor's Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness, Louisiana Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, and the Louisiana Department of 
wildlife and fisheries. As I said, additional entities involved, universities, federal agencies, et cetera. So what evidence have you seen of this interagency teamwork? And does this give you hope for the success of this initiative? It does give me hope. And definitely I've seen that collaboration in the past couple of years as I have been working on the on the initiative. It was mostly focused on developing the project ideas. It was mostly focused on how we can design uh, the models that will be developed by the consultant companies to uh, for at the statewide level. And it was challenging because each one of the agencies have their priorities, right. have their specific mission. So to align those variety of mission goals and, and their their priorities was not easy. But we got it done. They worked together and it was it was good to see these agencies working together. It will be even more challenging to see it in the future phases as we transition from the technical aspects to the implementation, to the okay. policies, to the ordinance that will be used, as we said, to empower that information. Right. Because the information is good, but it will be of limited effect if it's not empowered by policies. Right. It's only one part of the equation. Exactly. And in my opinion, as challenging as it is, is the easy part of the equation because we have experiences in the consulting companies and the private sector to get it done. Right. As difficult and as expensive as it is, but it is, it will be done because they have the know-how, they have the expertise, they have the knowledge. Right. So that's the easy way to get, that's the easy part. Okay. But when you get to the policies, when you get to the implementation, when you get to the- Introducing complexity. That's, that's the tough part. Introducing human error, introducing, yeah, all of the political ramifications and interagency collaboration and bureaucracy, and it becomes a tangled web. That's exactly right. So, So even though I'm an engineer and I realize the level of complexity involved to develop statewide tools, it's very challenging and it's taking you know, the biggest engineering firms in the country to develop it. So I understand all that. But even with all that, that's the easy part. Yeah, we can hope. Yes. <laughs> My mom likes to say, while I breathe, I hope. Yes. <laughs> so thinking about the state of Louisiana, can you talk about the importance surrounding the preservation of our wetlands, coastal ecology, and inland watersheds? Why should the coastal conditions in Louisiana matter not only to residents, but also to people who don't share our geography? So that's definitely, that's a good question. So our, our coastal system, it has a cultural and economic and environmental significance at the national level. The Mississippi River, for example, is one of the most significant drivers and influencers of our coastal system, but it draws water from 30, 31 states. Right. So it affects a big portion of the United States. I always think about the Louisiana Purchase and all of the tributaries. Yes. So it's it's vast. So it has a ramification on the national economy. Our port system, the navigation industry, that everything ultimately comes through the Mississippi River, and it has access to a, a significant part of the United States. Having that efficiency and access keeps costs down for mm-hmm. a lot of products. So it has a, a not only a substantial environmental and cultural significance, it has a huge economic impact. Uh, and that's what makes it 
important but makes it also challenging. How do you balance the... And you can see that reflected in the master plan. Uh, they constantly talk about working coast. Okay. Louisiana is not beaches and resorts. It's right. Working, working coast. That's true. Um, and there, there are a lot of projects and a lot of strategies in the master plan that try to strike that balance between helping the coastal communities, helping preserve jobs, and helping with the economic impacts, at the same time trying to preserve the health and the vigor of that ecosystem, facing natural uh, processes, you know, sea level rise, subsidence, increased frequency of hurricanes. All these are forces that we have to, to deal with. The, the, we are losing a substantial amount of wetland every year. So it's not an easy problem to try to strike that balance between uh, economy, culture, and environment. But a systemic, well-organized, thoughtful plan is the best approach that we can have. Yeah. I really like that you pulled out that element of the working coast and thinking, like, as you said, a lot of coastline is resort, is recreation. And although we have a, a broad swath of our culture is fishing and recreation on the water, and but also with the oil industry and all these, I guess. Navigation, the port system. Yes, um, absolutely. Yes. And so it, it, it introduces like the component of heavy industry yes. into the environmental component of it. So I think it's really important. And I like that you plucked that out. So this is maybe a little bit more to your heart. Talk to me about what it means to you as a citizen of the state of Louisiana to be involved in and to bear witness to a project of this scale and significance. So I always remind myself that about my role. I'm a scientist, I'm an engineer, and my role is to provide information and facts backed up by best possible information, solid science, to provide information to decision makers and to agencies if they pursue a specific project or if they pursue a specific strategy, that's what will happen. These are the potential benefits. These are the potential impacts. And if you don't take an action, that's the benefit. That's the impact. And I try to keep my objectivity in that. If I cross that line and I start to be emotionally attached to a certain strategy or philosophy or project, I lose that objectivity. Okay. I cannot be on both sides of the fence of being a technical expert that provides information about benefits and impacts. I cannot cross the line and become an advocate. You cannot do both. And once you lose your objectivity, you can't get it back. As a Louisiana resident, I'm very happy to be engaged and I'm, be, I'm very happy to, be, to do my best to be as objective as I can. But okay. I'm, so that's where I see my role is, and I hope I can continue to be as objective as I can, provide helpful information, and then there will be somebody else that look at this information and look at the level of risk versus the impacts and make a, a decision for the, the well-being of the general public. Well, I like that then. Your heart is in your objectivity. Exactly. <laughs> the perfect balance yes. for a scientist. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, so we've arrived at our closing question, if you can believe it. One that I ask all of our guests in the spirit of Fueled, our podcast name. 
So please tell us what fuels you in general, in life, career, work, family. What drives you? I always put it in that order. My faith and my family and my friends in that order is my support system. That's what keeps me in peace uh, and it gives me comfort. My career in academia and being part of the young generation's progression and growth, uh, seeing a young professional uh, and observing their growth, their progress, and ultimately their success is very fulfilling to me. I absolutely enjoy it when I run into a former student and I see them so successful. It's very, very fulfilling. There is, it's unparalleled to observe that. So that's what fuels me. It makes me a little misty-eyed because I have to tell you, I don't know if you know this about me, but I used to be a teacher. Oh. I taught fourth and fifth grade French. Yes. And the other day I went to the park with a friend of mine. I heard a, a call from the distance. Did you used to be a teacher? And ran up to me and gave me this big, big hug and remembered me. And I'll tell you that so it brings tears to my eyes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yes, and he was applying for college and just doing well, and it just brightened my day. So I can't imagine the magnitude of even seeing people further along in their careers. Yes. And so that's awesome that you maintain that, that mentorship aspect as one of the pillars of your fulfillment. Absolutely. This has been a pleasure. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your experience and your, your knowledge and expertise with us. We look forward to pushing this out and sharing it with everyone else. Thank you for the opportunity. Mm -hmm.